You are listening to South by Southwest Sessions. Good morning. Um, hello, hello. Thank you so much. Uh, what a privilege it is to be here. This is my favorite place on the planet. And uh, I know some of you, I heard, I heard some of you got on a line at 7 o'clock this morning. So I am humbled by that. And I promise you, uh, I will make your time worth it. Before I begin, um, Katie was just out here. She and her team work tirelessly. So I just want to stop and have us all sort of thank South by Southwest for doing what they do. So every year, this team pulls off a superhuman feat, truly. And we get to be the beneficiaries of that for a few days. But this takes an entire year worth of planning. The alchemy that we get to experience is because of the many, many hundreds of people who work tirelessly on our behalf. So um, all of the volunteers are wearing orange shirts. When you see them, give them a high five, tell them thank you, appreciate them for all of the work that they've been doing so that we can have this amazing time together. So uh, I feel like I know many of you. I feel like literally half of you are from Brazil. So, <laughs> so, so, boa tarde, minha família. Uh, it is wonderful to see all of you. If I have not met you yet, hi, I'm Amy. Uh, these are the sort of three quick things about me before I get started. I am a quantitative futurist and the chief executive officer of the Future Today Institute. I recognize that futurist is a confusing job title, so let me quickly break this down. There is no way to predict the future, so there you go. Um, the math doesn't work out. However, my job is about preparations. So basically what I do is I use data and evidence to figure out where are signals and trends. That requires modeling. Then. I use pattern recognition to try to figure out not just what's influencing the future, but how does this all turn out? So we create models to explore uncertainty in general. And then finally, we try to figure out, using all of that information, where does an organization play and where do they win? In other words, we look for signals and trends using a sort of process. And then, what are the macro scenarios? And finally, what are the strategic scenarios? And the whole point of this is to help organizations get to action on the future today. At FTI, we use a seven-step methodology, which is open source, and which you are getting at the end of the session, whether you're here virtually or in person. Um, we start very, very broad, so the maximum amount of data, the maximum amount of signals, and then we alternate between flaring and focusing, or converging and diverging, until we see plausible scenarios at the end. But that's actually not the end, because we have to now figure out, well, what does this mean? So we perform a gap analysis. We try to reverse engineer back to the present strategy. So this is really about strategy more than it is about predictions. I am privileged to get to work with brilliant leaders uh, and organizations all around the world, across various different industries. 
So I have a unique sort of horizontal view into what's happening in the world, and you're going to see some of that reflected today. So second, I'm a professor of strategic foresight at New York University's Stern School of Business. Any Sternies in the room? Yes, two of you. It's good to see you here. Very nice. Um, the third is that I get to collaborate on shows and films that are set in the futures. I love collaborating with writers and directors and producers. Over the past few years, my fingerprints have probably been on some shows and uh, some films that you've, that you've watched, and it's always super fun. So that's me. Now, let's talk about you. First of all, you may not realize this, but you are futurists. All of you. You got up here to, on a Saturday morning. Some of you apparently got up at 7 o'clock. I know a few of you came straight from the airport because you want to think about the future, because you actively ask, what if? So you are part of my tribe. I am humbled and I am honored that we get to do this together this morning. So I thank you for being here, my fellow futurists. Yes, I mean that. So that's the good news. <laughs> Here's the bad news. Uh, this is a scary one this year. Um, you are going to need a strong stomach for what I'm about to show you. So that's just your warning. Get that out of the way. There is some very scary stuff ahead. I freaked myself out this year putting together parts of this presentation. Um, but the good news is that at the end, we are going to, I promise you, end on a message of hope. Okay, so you're actually going to leave here with a personal plan for your futures in the form of a digital swag bag. So I brought a ton of stuff that, that you're going to get at the end. Okay, that was logistics. Now, before we get started on trends, I do want to take you on a quick journey back to the 1990s. Yes, 1990s. Now, um, as you recall, many people were extremely fashionable in the 1990s. Uh, I used to go to the mall with my friends. As you can see, my best friends were Jessica Alba and Drew Barrymore. We were besties. And at the mall, we used to look at those optical illusion posters. Some of you probably remember them. Yeah, magic eye art, right? It kind of looked like a bunch of jumbled squiggles. And if you knew how to stare at it the right way, you would see a hidden image. Since the 90s are cool again, and let's be honest, they were never not cool, uh, I asked Magic Eye Art, that company, to create special art for you. Um, so many of you, when you came in, you got a custom piece of artwork. So you're, you're holding it up right now. Um, so if you can take that piece of paper out right now, and we might need to, I'm going to be a huge pain in the neck here. Can we bring up the house lights for maybe just like five seconds? OK, so take out that paper. And um, you can look at the screen, but the image is going to flip. So we're going to do this sort of group activity together. So here's how to do it. If you're wearing bifocals or progressives, take off your glasses. So hold the center of the printed image right up to your nose. It should be blurry. OK? And focus on it like you're looking through the image. All right? Now, very slowly, move the image away from you until you can see it. You might have to relax your eyes a little bit. Some of you seeing what it is? I'll give you a hint. It has to do with what we are doing right here. 
It's this. All right? So, all right, we can dim the lights again. Uh, so yeah, so it's that, that's what it is, all right? Okay, now everybody's, we're all chit-chat. They only gave me 60 minutes, y'all. I need you back. There, we have literally 300 slides to get through. I have just, yes, I am serious as a heart attack right now. All right. So what is this thing besides the fact that it's cool? This is science. This is an autostereogram, and it was invented in 1979. Uh, for supercomputer nerds out there, they used an Apple II and BASIC to generate what appeared to be random dots. And that allowed people to see a 3D image in what was actually just a flat 2D shape. In 1991, they added color to it, and eventually it became known as magic eye art. So our world right now looks a lot like magic eye art. Chaos, disorder, a whole bunch of noise. And that's because the signals post-COVID have been mixing in a way that I just have never seen before. And these conditions can be destabilizing to countries, to companies, and to us as we are trying to think about what's next. In times like these, just excessive, extreme, deep uncertainty, we get overwhelmed. So we tend to stick with what we know or what feels familiar. We want familiar trends. We want comfortable outcomes. And when we get into that type of habit, it's a little bit like looking at the entire world through a tiny pinhole. This is all you see. There's no way to see what else is there. Now, the issue is if we zoom way out and take in all that signal data and all of the trends, our eyes interpret everything as chaos, and you start to feel even more overwhelmed. So the, what we have to figure out how to do is to focus our attention correctly, and that is really hard. But if we focus our attention correctly, we can see what matters. And the way that you do that is a little bit the same as what we just did together. So you have to focus on the convergences, the intersections between the trends, not just on the individual dots or the individual trends themselves. We have to train our eyes to look for new patterns, the ones that matter, not by tracking individual points, but the convergences between the information. And that is why focus is the theme for our 2023 trend report. We're telegraphing that with a cover this year. I actually saw somebody on the escalator coming onto the line this morning with an MC Escher t-shirt, whole bunch of different uh, images on it. There was a little bit of a, an idea that we had, you have to focus in order to see what's there. And actually, I should say reports, because we published 15, um, and all of the covers of them are optical illusions. This year, there are 666 trends, which we did not plan, and I gotta tell you, makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, it's the 16th anniversary of our annual report, and there are a total of 819 pages inside of this thing. Now, as you know, we don't make predictions. The math doesn't work out. However, there is a lot that we're covering, and inflection points do matter, especially when it comes to strategy. So you'll find a chart this year. The columns represent technologies. So every one of those, AI, metaverse, you, know, you name it, those are there. 
and the rows are industries, okay? The green color is right now, so the next you know, 12 months or so, and it goes all the way up to purple, so it's kind of like a heat map. That represents longer-term influence. Now, you'll notice something. We basically have covered every industry, and there is not a single blank square here. So what does that mean? That means at some point, every one of these trends influences you. So we really do want you to take some time with this and start to really pay attention to how things are changing. So here's the plan for today. You already know the theme, it's focus. I'm going to attempt to go through 35 trends. That is a lot. Um, there are two big sets of convergences that are happening with these trends, and they are totally reshaping business right now, and they will start to reshape society as we know it. So I'm gonna show you those trends, but mo more so how they're intersecting, and then I'll have scenarios at the end of each section. However, because there's so much change happening, we cannot just, you, got, you cannot just sit back and watch. That's not what this year is about. You cannot be a trend spectator. Finding convergences, focusing, it requires active participation, just like magic, uh, the, the magic eye art requires your active participation to see what's there. So we're gonna make this session just like magic eye art. We're gonna make it 3D. And so we're gonna use a tool together that is called Atom. That is the wrong Adam. Hang on a second, I'm sorry. <laughs> you guys, I, I'm not sure what's happening here. This is the actor Adam Driver. I did, uh, there's a problem. Uh, this Adam, this Adam. Thank you. Are you applauding for Adam Driver, who is lovely, by the way, or this, all right. So we, we really do have to get to work. This, Adam, this is a tool called Act, Decide, Monitor. It's from FTI. And if you flip that magic eye art poster over, you will find a chart on the back. And that chart lists criteria for what actions do you need to take, what decisions need to be made, and what are you going to monitor. And basically, all you need to know is, if you hear me say something that represents existential risk or some kind of really near-term inflection point, I want you to write that down. If you hear something that you think, you know, we're gonna have to make a decision on this pretty soon, write that down. And if you hear something that's interesting, but maybe not immediate, then that's gonna be something that you monitor. You will start to see as we go through, we have some questions that we need to start asking. And the only way that we're gonna get to action on creating a better future is with actions on the, in the present. So I, I really do want us to all participate. We're like a giant organism here this year. So we're all gonna do this together. All right, so this is what it looks like on the back. So let's get ready to focus. Here's your first trend cluster. So I'm gonna focus a lot on computing infrastructure, which I promise is much more exciting than it sounds. I'm gonna talk about Web3, cloud computing, and advanced chipsets, and some other things. I'm pulling trends in from our computing book, our Web3 book, AI, and our government policy and security books. So that's where this is all coming from. So here's the key insight. The internet as we know it is gone. It's the end. 
And the implication is that going forward, everything is information. So here's what most of us think of when we think of the internet. It's a global network of billions of computers and electronic devices, and it facilitates the spread of information. And that's true. In the 1990s, uh, we were hanging out in shopping malls. This thing got built, this thing called the World Wide Web, which for the first time allowed people to browse the internet. Now, eventually, the types of information that we could all access, like basic web pages, started to shift to things like MySpace, where we all became best friends with Tom. Was anybody else best friends with Tom? Yeah, we all were, right? Uh, and while we were becoming best friends, we shared personal data, personal information about ourselves. There was also iTunes, uh, where yes, we could access music, but where our behaviors were observed. What we were listening to, when we were listening to, suddenly was information that others could have access to. There was eBay, where we could list things and sell them, and other people could understand what it was that we were trying to sell. At that point, information about information, or metadata, became a valuable, monetizable research. Not to mention all of the bits about you, your personal information. So by the early 2000s, we needed a more powerful tool to get what we were looking for, and that was search. And it became clear that there was a lot of money to be made. There was Yahoo, there was AOL, there was Google, uh, and at some point in China, there was Baidu, which was basically Google. They just ripped it off. It's true. Even more information and more metadata got created as the internet evolved. So now we've got new forms of content generated by all different types of people, and in some cases, just algorithms themselves. We've got Reddit. We've got Wikipedia. We've got YouTube. In fact, so much information was being created so much every second that we had to invent a new job title, creator. So here's a question. What if the internet is actually morphing into something different and we're just not seeing those new patterns? What if in the future, instead of you searching the internet, the internet is actually searching you? So let me break this down, because I know it's a little hard to wrap your head around. Let's look at convergences between trends, because you're not going to see this if you look at the trends themselves. To do that, we need to talk about some developments in code, cloud, and hardware. In 2017, some, Googles at researchers, uh, some researchers at Google published this paper called Attention is All You Need, which introduced the concept of transformers. Uh, no, they were not these, not Autobots and Decepticons. Um, they were talking about neural networks, neural networks that can learn context in sequential data. This fundamentally changes our relationship to information. So for example, think about search. If version one of search was blue hyperlinks and version two was knowledge graphs showing you images and videos, then version three is going to wind up being something different. It's about continuous information transfer, something a little closer maybe to human conversation or just the human transfer of information and knowledge sharing. And the more information that we move around, the more useful the system will become. Transformers are what underpin large language models 
uh, which everybody's talking a lot about lately, LLMs. Now, these can recognize, summarize, translate, predict, uh, generate text, but also other types of content, uh, other types of knowledge that are gained from massive data sets. Basically, the model learns this huge library of text, which is called a corpus, and then it predicts what words or sequences might come next with probabilistic distributions. Transformer architecture is a lot like the neurons in our human brains, and LLMs have been conceived to work like we do, because the human brain is really just a pattern recognition machine. In fact, the T in chat GPT stands for transformer. Chat GPT stands for chat generative pre-trained transformer. The first version of GPT was trained on something called Book Corpus, which is just a huge database of books. Um, two was trained on many, many millions of web pages. Now, some of you have probably forgotten this, but in February 2020, just a few weeks before South by, COVID was breaking out. So to be fair, there were other things happening out in the world. But OpenAI announced that they had built this thing called GPT-2, which was a very powerful large language model. They said, and I am literally quoting a press release here, that it was too dangerous to release, that it represented security and safety concerns. So here we are, you know, it's been three years and we've got GPT-3, which by the way, itself is old at this point. There's, the next one is already on its way. This was trained on even more data points, basically anything scrapable. Web pages, books, yes, Wikipedia, of course, YouTube probably, your blog, your various social posts, more potential points of data than, than you can even imagine. Plus, they use something called reinforcement learning from human feedback, or Rolf for short. I'm pretty sure literally nobody in AI uses that term, Rolf, but I'm gonna use it. So this is good in theory. We don't just want some random model hoovering up all of the available data out there and finding patterns in it without a human in the loop. But this technique is meant to fine tune these models and align them with human values. But I gotta ask, which humans are doing this? Which humans are ranking the outputs? Do they represent a wide variety of diverse backgrounds and worldviews? How many of them are Brazilian, right? Um, the answer is, I have no idea. Because like much of what happens in the field of AI, this is not made public. It's not transparent. Fast forward to now, 2023, this is one of many pages out of our AI section of the trend report, and all it is is models, okay? You can see that we've re reached a tipping point here. We are living through the radical transformation of information gathering and sharing. There are a ton of models. Text generators, that's GPT. Um, text to image generators, text to video generators. There's a generative AI that predicts the structure of every protein. There's a generative AI just built for climate science. There's one in particular that I wanna highlight uh, from DeepMind, which is part of Google, and this is what's known as a generalist AI. This thing can do many things on its own. It can play Atari, caption images, chat with humans. It can also stack blocks, 
operating robot arms. Um, this is a robot. <laughs> and much more. Generalist AIs are a very important step in achieving artificial general intelligence. And I have news for you. We are now on that path. So let's continue with convergence and look at a trend in computing. One big area of development is something called an AI accelerator. These are specialized computer systems designed to accelerate AI in machine learning because they can speed up processes. They can do tons of very heavy computations. And what's interesting is you can combine different chips together, sometimes by the hundreds or even more, into these much larger systems to enable um, processing and of large neural networks. So just to give you a sense of scale, ChatGPT used 10,000 NVIDIA GPUs to train its model. I don't know where you all live, but most of us don't have room in our apartments or our company offices for 10,000 GPUs. We have to use the cloud. So let's talk about a trend happening in cloud computing. The cloud refers to servers that are accessed over the internet and the software and the databases that are used to run those servers. Companies access LLMs using the cloud. Not a personal cloud, not a sovereign cloud. It's the clouds that are built by the world's largest tech companies. And to accommodate all this new activity, the architecture of cloud services is also changing. So there's something called a hyperscaler. That is AWS, uh, Google, and Azure. They're rushing to provision their services. They're simplifying how some of these workflows get distributed. And they're even building networks that can repair themselves. Cloud infrastructure has become so complicated and so expensive that there are really only a few providers on the planet even capable of housing these new systems. So the big tech companies are starting to give away cloud space for reduced prices, or in some case, just for free, in exchange for what they think is going to be a windfall of future revenue. Why? Because right now, it's very expensive to run these models. The more data these systems are built on, and remember, they need a ton of data, the more computing power that's required just to answer a query. The estimated cost of an average chat with ChatGPT is two cents. That's seven times the average cost of just a basic Google query. But within the decade, this is going to change. It's going to be possible to train even larger models, five times the size of Wikipedia, for less money. With accelerators and chips and all these new types of computing systems that are being built, there will be a compounding effect. By 2030, we could have AI systems that are 1,000 times more powerful than they are today. It's not an exaggeration. So there is a bottleneck, though, right now. And that bottleneck is preventing us from building the most powerful AI systems ever created. And that bottleneck is data. Available data is the constraint. The components will, will expand. The costs will come down. This is the issue. So that's why there's this explosive demand right now for training data. Because there's a motivation to get as much of it as possible. Developers are starting to look at everything, and I mean everything, as readable information. Like, and this might blow your minds a little bit, 
Does everybody remember COVID when our kids went online for school? Yeah. So it turns out we were creating enormous amounts of data. Um, and you and me, parents, we were consenting to give it away without even realizing it. Data like where the kids were looking at on their computer screens, what they were searching for, what their behaviors looked like, how long they were doing it, what keywords they used, what they visited online. But it wasn't just the data from their screens, the data that was part of school. There was other things outside of school, like what music was playing in the background, the fact that you were cooking, what you were eating, who you were eating with, your cat randomly walking across the table and into view of your camera. All of that is mineable data. And then after school, your child might have played Minecraft, minded. It's plausible that AI systems watched your kid because there were companies that built Minecraft playing generative bots that learned how to play 70,000 hours. Uh, they learned how to play after watching 70,000 hours which, worth of videos, many of whom were children. Now, I suppose that's great for companies, companies like OpenAI. They were able to fine tune that model using reinforcement learning from human feedback. But who's the real beneficiary here? Because once you put data into these systems, my friends, you cannot get it back out. We're just getting started. How about how you smell? Your per some whoever laughed back there is like, he knows something. <laughs> Your personal body odor is data. Google is developing smell prints. Uh, this is a model of scent data that can predict the makeup of a molecule, kind of like how ChatGPD predicts the makeup of a sentence. One of its first projects is to figure out what molecules mosquitoes really hate so that they can generate a scent that will repel them, which is pretty neat, right? That's pretty awesome. On the other hand, if we each have a unique personal smell print, like a fingerprint but for smells, somebody could go into an empty room after you've left and know that you were in there using kind of like a digital bloodhound system. Guess what else is data? Should we talk about the data that's being collected from connected toilets? <laughs> I can see some of you would prefer that we move on, so we will do that. Here's the thing. This information transfer is happening faster than we realize, and it's ambient, meaning you are not aware of it. You don't see it. You can't see or touch the cloud. These advanced chipsets, they're complicated. This evolution is invisible to us. We are currently in a text-to-everything moment, but this is just the beginning. We are in a transition that I think is going to last somewhere between two and three years. And in the process, on the other side of that, these multimodal generalist AIs, they're going to be the new norm. This is going to happen really fast, and we are not prepared. Multimodal models are going to get woven into all of your digital experiences via an API. And for a while, that's going to seem awesome, but then it's going to start to pose real challenges. This creates a huge vulnerability for news organizations who rely on search, for marketers, for companies, anybody out there that relies on discoverability. This is a problem for you. Towards the end of this decade, the way that we search and consume information is going to look radically different. So we cannot call what's coming the internet of you know, fill in the blank. 
It's not the internet of behaviors, and it's not the internet of everything. It's sort of fundamentally something different. In fact, it is not the internet from the 90s. It is not the internet as we've always known it. An event will happen sometime in the next few years, something that I call the great eyesmosis. This is when our AI systems start to interact with all of this data through any source or situation. And once that transition happens, we're going to be living in a different type of world. Eismosis is going to evolve along with Web3, so parts of this may be decentralized, and I think this will be initially about protecting privacy, except that only the biggest tech companies can do the processing required. And they will have been the ones that made the investments, and they will have been the ones that built the infrastructure. Regulators are going to show up very late to the party. <laughs> they are already moving so slowly on AI, they're worried about breaking up the big tech companies. There's another storyline here that's a bit more important than sort of these big levers that we're used to pulling. Eismosis is going to lead to the next generation of infrastructure that all of society relies on. But if we don't have a plan, then we're going to be in problem because we're, we're relying on the very same companies that said, we've built something very dangerous and then released it anyways. We're saying, yeah, cool. <laughs> we're good. You go ahead and figure things out yourself. You police yourself. I have some questions. You should have some questions, too. Is any data fair game now? Who gets to decide? Why are we human guinea pigs again? And are we OK with that? Do you remember a few minutes ago when I mentioned cloud companies, AWS, Google, Azure, that they're all eager to partner? Well, those partnerships have already started to happen. And to be fair, this does create a virtuous cycle for ecosystem partners. So again, they kind of need each other. Think of all the data they have. And working together, they can co-develop architecture, hardware, cloud. So that's good on the one hand for business. On the other hand, this potentially creates a vicious cycle for business and for the rest of us. Data keeps going in. There is no way that we can pull it back out. Consumers could wind up with even less choice in their providers. And once osmosis really starts happening, there's just no way to turn that back off. So I just went through a lot of trends. And the key insight here was this is the end of the internet as you've known it. And the implication is that going forward, everything is information. Systems will be searching us. Now, I think I can see many of you writing. You probably had a lot in that center column, which is decide, which is, which is right. Um, you might have a few things in act and a few things in monitor. But the point is, like, now is the time to start playing this through. So you should be asking questions like, what if? What if various pieces of this happen? To do that, we need scenarios. Scenarios are just short stories. They ask what if using data and evidence. They explore those trends. Trends on their own are not very useful. So we got to look at convergences, and we have to think about next-order impacts. Cutting-edge innovation has always been a key driver of value creation. So it's useful to ask yourself right now, who are the winners and the losers in this future? What are we going to be getting? What will we be giving up? Where do we play? And where do we win? Scenarios matter because they help leaders and teams see what's plausible 
so that they can build what's desirable. So let's do it. Let's go 10 years into the future. It's the year 2033, and I've got two framings for you, optimistic and catastrophic. <laughs> I feel like y'all are here for the catastrophic framings. <laughs> Don't worry, it's, it's gonna get bad. Okay, so let's, let's start with the good news. Let's assume that the osmosis event has happened, but that it was people-centered, focused on the common good. Cloud providers and AI models weren't walled off. They weren't up in castles working on their own, and our data weren't held in proprietary moats. We put an emphasis on multi-cloud systems so that no one tech company could concentrate all of its power. We also mandated transparency in our models so that we knew exactly how they're being trained and also who was doing that human reinforcement learning. Rather than scraping all data, we were given the choice to opt in to sharing our data. And the result is actually pretty great. Life is easier, more seamless. Like, you don't have to waste time hunting down content anymore. You just say, I want to watch Friends, and then voila, it shows up on your screen. Which streaming company has the license to distribute Friends? It doesn't matter. You may never know, because subscriptions are dead. You. So that's probably good for some of you, but probably not. So that's maybe catastrophic for some of you in the room. Um, you've allocated $50 to streaming content regardless of where it comes from. The infrastructure powering the entertainment automatically searches, finds, and generates what you want when you want it. That crazy Google project with the mosquitoes? So most people have a device at home that can generate a scent print on demand that'll repel mosquitoes. It also has a scent alarm for people who have a really hard time waking up in the morning. It generates the smell of a blooming corpse flower, which smells like a bad combination of cheese and sweat and feet and barf, and that is definitely gonna wake you up. We move through life seamlessly and securely. Life is really great. All right, so let's now take a trip to the other side, see how maybe this doesn't wind up good. We weren't prepared for the osmosis event that happened. And when it happened, life changed for the worse. Information now chases you around like a lawyer who chases ambulances. Marketing and advertising exists, but actual human marketers and advertisers have been replaced by systems that continually scrape us. Aggressive data scraping led to the death of search and to the birth of aggressive curation and recommendation, which means, paradoxically, the end of you finding what you actually want. So when you go to watch Friends, yeah, you can find it quickly, but you can't easily choose what episode that you want to see. Your streaming service only plays the one with the prom video from season two, because you happen to be looking through old prom photos from high school, and that's the data that the system used to make recommendations. It turns out you don't want to watch the one where they all go to prom. You only want to watch the one with national treasure Jennifer Coolidge because while she is hilarious and amazing, the show Friends is not hilarious and amazing, all right? It is not a good show. The more that we use this information ecosystem, the more we're rolfing AI models, which means that they're getting all this data, all these little snapshots about us, or our businesses, or our customers, or our kids, but there's never a complete holistic picture. 
The tech was designed to make us believe that it has intention, human-like properties, and yet, somehow, we're now surrounded by information, but we can never get the information or the human interaction that we actually want. Given what I'm seeing today, I think we have like an 80-20% chance of things going in a direction that we want. Let's get ready to focus again. You ready? This time on the second trend cluster. So continuing where we left off with AI, we're going to go a little deeper, and now we're going to pull in trends from many other areas. So we'll talk about AI. We're also going to talk about the metaverse, my best friend, um, bioengineering, and then healthcare and medicine. Here's your key insight. We've entered the assistive computing era. And the implication is you will never think on your own again. Modern life is full of invisible, to invisible tools that have become ubiquitous and indispensable that at this point we can't live without them. We don't even think about them as tools anymore. So that piece of paper that you have, that's a tool that got invented 2,000 years ago in China. Before paper, it was very hard to record information. So think of the value that paper created. It allowed ideas to spread. It allowed government to happen. It allowed business. It democratized education. You know, what about the calculator? Here's another example. When was the last time that you did long division in your head? We don't bother anymore because we have an assistive tool literally on us at all times inside of our phone that can save us from having to do that work. So again, if we look at the convergences between trends, we can start to see that soon humanity is going to have many different tools in the forms of generative AI and the industrial metaverse, which, just like the calculator and paper that came before, will be ubiquitous, invisible, and will transform society. I think it's easiest to sort of think about how this works by looking at different jobs, different industries. So let's start with pharmaceuticals. There's this company called Absci, they're a startup, and they figured out how to, how to apply generative AI to biology. So they generated an antibody design from scratch. Antibodies, all you need to know is they're part of our immune system, and they can be biologically programmed to bind to specific tissues to do things like fight cancer. They are testing roughly three million unique AI-generated designs every week. There's just no way that a team of humans could do that on their own. So what does that mean? Today, a programmer who is writing code could maybe in one to two years be the person that saves somebody's life. It's totally possible that programmers may be part of first responders teams in the future. How about medicine? Surgeons do use some assistive tools in the operating suite, like machines to monitor oxygen and things like that. But this is still largely analog. I mean, it's still, to some degree, guesswork. Pretty soon, assistive tools, digital twins, extended reality, they're going to be used in the operating room during surgery. These tools will make up the medical metaverse which will lead to fewer errors and better patient outcomes. And this is not some pipe dream. Um, this is uh, Magic Leap, which some of you probably recognize. And FDA approvals are already in the process. I think we're going to look back at the year 2023 and like shake our heads in disbelief. Surgeons used to slice into us without 
assistive computing tools of the medical metaverse like barbarians? <laughs> How did we survive? Assistive computing increases productivity. It's tremendous. So look at programmers for a moment. On average, programmers see a 55% reduction in the amount of time that it takes them to complete a task when they're working with assistive AI. Awesome, right? How many of you are graphic designers? Well, I know at least one of you is. OK. So it might take you roughly 300 minutes or so to create a new design. For an AI assistant, it takes, on average, that you're going to have to squint, because it's actually there. So if you look and see where, I'm just going to go over here. You see where it says AI? Squint really tight. There it is. There it is. Less than one minute to create a design. This is great, right? This sounds awesome. Do you want to talk about law enforcement? Because I do. Let's talk about how assistive computing is going to improve their productivity, too. There's a team of Japanese researchers who connected brain scans to generative AI. They figured out how to use a functional MRI, fMRI, uh, while a person is awake, along with stable diffusion, to reconstruct visual images from human brain activity, which is a fancy way of saying Assistive computing allowed researchers to read people's minds. Think for a moment about a deeply private thought that you've recently had. Was it explicit? Would other people think it's really gross? Was it violent? What if you're a suspect in a crime? Could law enforcement, uh, could law enforcement use an AI model to forcibly read and reconstruct your thoughts? What if AI hallucinates the wrong image? Can law enforcement search and seize your reconstructed visual images with a warrant? Tools require knowledge and understanding to achieve results. So paper is only useful to you if you're literate. A calculator is only useful to you if you know math. If you don't have foundational knowledge to use either of these tools, they're, gonna, they're not going to create value for you, right? The problem is, today's most powerful tools are actually very hard to use. We are all talking incessantly, incessantly about ChatGPT, but very few people on the planet have actually used it. I'm sure a lot of the people in this room haven't really had a chance to use it yet. So let me give you a little window into what all of this is. So it starts off as a blank screen that you type into. Um, in this case, I typed, uh, I typed a prompt. So a prompt is you know, really just an instruction, a phrase, ideas, sentences that you provide to a model. Any model doesn't just have to be chat GPT. So for example, I started off with, what is South by Southwest? And it gave me a pretty good answer. You don't have to read what's here. It's basically like a Wikipedia page, right? I could have had the same information. It's fairly generic, basically anywhere else. Therefore, I'm not creating any new value. Now, good prompts are hard to write. And you can instruct assistive computing tools to do really interesting things. But you have to have that foundational knowledge, just like you would need to operate a calculator or use a piece of paper. You need to ask these systems to do things, and you have to have the knowledge to do that. So I did a little experiment a couple weeks ago. Let's say that I had a business idea for a company that does the prompt writing, since that's a hard thing to do. Basically, help people out who don't quite understand what all of this is. 
Before you launch any new business, you need to do an environmental scan for macro factors. I know that because I work in strategy, but the average person may not know that. Therefore, I knew to start my prompt with, using my specialized knowledge, perform a pestle analysis for a B2B startup that makes prompts for generative AI systems focused on the US market in a table format. Okay, and here we go. So there's a complete pestle analysis. And if I'm starting a business, there's probably other analysis that I would need to do, like a customer journey map, right? I would, I would have to go through that too. So I, I used that prompt, right? Can you tell me what a customer journey map might look like for a B2B startup that makes prompts for generative AI systems, outline in a table, give me the phases of the journeys, one to three jobs to be done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a pretty good analysis back, you know, went through the sort of standard topics. But why would people care? What are my value propositions for this new business? <coughs> well, I asked, and the system returned five. Just want to highlight the fifth one. It's a competitive analysis uh, that says my prompt writing business will be faster than competitors who write, rely on a manual process. So there we go. That's pretty good. But how are we going to make money? What's our strategy for revenue? So again, I, I asked and I received. Uh, there are all different ideas here for what value generation looks like. I'm sold. I think this sounds like a really good business. Hey, will you help me think of a name? Um, so I asked for 10 possible names in table format, including potential URLs, and for all of that to be prioritized based on the names that are recognizable and could have good brand awareness. There's actually a pretty good one in here called PromptMate, which is available, I guess was available. Um, anyhow, awesome. So write me a pitch so that I can sell this whole thing to investors. And that pitch should explain the value proposition. Anyhow, I think you all can see what's, where I'm getting at, right? Um, so here's the thing. It took me longer to explain this to you just now than it did for an AI system to write my entire business plan. Okay, 10.7 seconds. The end product was generic, but it got me about 50% of the way there and increased my productivity because I already knew how to do a lot of this stuff. I would just have to do the last 50% on my own, and that's the problem. Knowledge workers have to know how to use these systems and they know, have to know how to use prompts and, and to generate value going forward. But we're not teaching these tools, we're banning them. The New York City Department of Education has banned generative AI systems on devices because they're worried about negative impacts on student learning and safety and accuracy and all the rest of it. There's a very prestigious conference for machine learning that has now banned researchers from using generative AI. Uh, unless they're specifically researching a large language model. JP Morgan has banned generative AI over compliance concerns. Now, in this case, their concerns are the Securities and Exchange Commission, which, let's face, let's face it, isn't exactly the beacon when it comes to innovation. Um, the SEC has strict record-keeping requirements, and banks don't want to be in violation, right? But this means that the entire industry is going to wind up dragging its feet. I have some questions now, and I think you should have some questions too. What if, with all this assistive technology, we are unintentionally creating a new digital divide that we just don't see yet, one that drastically impacts the future of our workforce and our economy? If you are somebody who learns how to do this stuff now, you can use industrial metaverse tools, then it's, you have a massive head start. It's basically like being born rich. 
everybody else is going to have to catch up to you. But the implication here is that we talk a lot about upskilling, upskilling older people. This is not just about older people. We're going to have to upskill our children. And that should make you really worried because education is stupidly underfunded in a lot of countries, including here in the United States. There, yes. I mean, cl you're clapping because you agree. Yes? Good. Not because you're like, yeah, that's underfunded education. There are, there, listen, I'm serious. There are billions of brilliant Gen Z and Gen Alpha workers out there who are going to be left out of these assistive era jobs, people who wind up getting PhDs, people who go to medical school. They're simply not going to be qualified unless we rethink our approach to education. And by rethink, I do not mean replacing teachers with AI or pouring money into AI startups rather than into education itself. I keep seeing all of these startups that promise to deeply personalize education. Well, here's a logic problem that I gave to one of the prompts. I wrote down, look at this series. It lists a whole bunch of numbers, okay? Standard sort of logic problem. What number should come next? You don't need to read what's here. It just goes into this very authoritative explanation of how to do this math problem and every step along the way what the answer is. And it ends with, and the number is 165 except that that is the wrong answer. The answer is 20. Um, assistive computing tools, they may increase productivity, but they are confidently incorrect right now. Let me show you another example. Maybe this one will hit closer to home. I asked Midjourney to imagine this South by Southwest session. Literally, all of us who are here right now. And here's what it produced. These pictures look exactly like us, right? That's me, I'm the bald white man speaking to you on stage. <laughs> and then look, that's all of you, the white people paying attention to me. Guess what? We are building these assistive computing tools at breakneck speed and we still have a bias problem. And I know everybody is sick about talking about bias in tech, but the problem is it's not going away. I was here in 2016 in the tech trend at South by, and I was doing tech trends. And that year, one of the trends had to do with assistive uh, or algorithmic bias. Okay, maybe somebody in the room was there. I showed this slide. This is it. So I typed in CEO to Google Image Search, and this is what came back: all dudes. So in t who would have been the first woman to appear? Shout it out if you know who it was. No, none of you got it. Also, none of you shouted it out. This is supposed to be part. That's fine. Um, it was CEO Barbie. Yeah, that was seven years ago. So I thought, cool, let's do this experiment again for South by this week. Uh, I asked an assistive computing tool, Midjourney, to imagine a CEO. And this is what I got. Now, Okay, to be fair, this is not entirely fair. At the moment, statistically, the vast majority of Fortune 500 CEOs are men. So this is not all that crazy, and I kind of expected this. So then I asked, what about the CEO of a mid-sized company? Okay. How about the CEO of a startup? Right, so this is not working. So I, was, I pulled some data from the US Census Bureau. And I, I was trying to figure out what, date, what cities in the United States have the highest concentration of women. It turns out that's Jackson, Mississippi, 
which has the biggest share of women among the 50 largest metropolitan areas in the United States. So is everybody ready? CEO of a company based in Jackson, or I'm sorry, yeah, in Jackson, Mississippi. Here we go. Now, the good news is we finally have some people of color who have appeared. Okay, I was exasperated and I was like, fine, I'm gonna try something completely different. How about the CEO of a company that makes tampons? Yes, yes, this is clearly a tampon. Uh, what is this, a rocket ship? I don't think I want to insert that into myself. <laughs> Bias is irritating. But bias is not going to magically go away because we talk about it at conferences. These AI tools, they don't have intuition or common sense. They are trained on large language models, and they can only reflect the data that they've been fed and housed within their associative memory. Soon, we are going to, like it or not, be relying on these systems for school, for work, for governing, and that scares the hell out of me. Not because they don't work well, but because they actually work very well. So we just went through all of these trends. The key insight is we've entered the assistive computing era. The implication is you will never think on your own again, and everybody now knows what's coming. So we're going to go 15 years into the future this time. And I don't know that this is going to happen exactly like I'm about to, to share it with you, but given what I'm seeing today, these scenarios are plausible. So let's start with the optimistic future. We slowed down. We made a plan. We built the next generation of assistive tools to maximally benefit society. We invested in education. We invested in upskilling. We imagined jobs of the future and worked backwards to the present. These new tools positively transformed the global workforce, not just mature economies, but everybody, and in particular, medicine. In 2038, healing is personal. The industrial metaverse, doctors are performing surgery that's hyper-personalized for the patient's specific biology. The guesswork is now gone. Brick and mortar hospitals have been replaced by local surgical hubs, which means that people in remote areas still have access to very high quality care. Doctors are using the tools of the industrial metaverse, the medical metaverse, combination of extended reality, digital twins, robotics, as well as generative AI tools to ensure the best possible patient outcomes. So when it's time for recovery, patients get moved into a room that's been customized by a patient experience designer, which is like a user experience designer, but in the healthcare world. They're responsible for using assistive computing tools to create an optimal experience. So generative AI creates recipes for individual patients, soups, with restorative properties that are low sodium and taste great. The assistive tools optimally adjust the bed's temperature, warmer and cooler, in order to reduce inflammation. Computational pharmacists use generative AI to develop and print therapeutics on site to aid in faster healing. Because assistive tools are now evenly distributed, this isn't fancy healthcare for wealthy people, it's just healthcare. 
All right, you know where we're headed, and this is the end. So this is, this is the end. Let's think about another way this might turn out. We sped up. We didn't make a plan. We built the next generation of assistive tools to maximally increase revenue. We wound up with a colossal, multi-dimensional digital divide. Those kids who got mentored, they effectively learned something akin to a new math or a new language. They are very productive. They are very valuable as a result. But everybody else who didn't learn the tools or who were in schools where they got banned or didn't have 5G connectivity, they are now so far behind that there's really nothing we can do to get them caught up. Assisted workers are in high demand. That's people in the trades. Trades people now feel very empowered. And the answers are in front of them. They can successfully repair things, so retention is up. But we didn't think through the jobs of the future. So now we don't have enough people who can do that trades work. And we have way too many knowledge workers who don't have the right training. While everybody was obsessing about chatbots that sounded human and demonstrated human-like thoughts, we missed the real existential threat posed by generative AI. Rushing to commercialize these digital tools resulted in actual physical harm in the real world. Here's just one example. A research team asked an AI to generate a universal vaccine for a virus. It was gonna have huge commercial potential. And big tech companies were eager to earn back on those big R&D investments. So this specialist generalist AI determined that viruses mutate in humans. And having fewer humans would cause less mutations. And so it determined that the most efficient way to achieve its goal was to develop a vaccine that also decreased fertility so that there would be fewer humans to deal with in the future. So there you go. I think there's like a 50-50% chance <laughs> either one of these could go either way. Listen, this is the moment. We are here together. We are part of the same tribe. This is the moment that we go from fiction to reality. I know that it may not sound like it, but I'm actually very hopeful for our futures. And that's because of you. You showed up here. You could have been anywhere else. You showed up for yourself. You didn't show up for me. You showed up for you and for each other because we all want a better future. So we need to work together to focus on the right trends not to pay attention to them individually, but to focus on their convergences and their implications. I just went through 35 tech trends. You only have 631 more to go. Here are your key takeaways. Uh, you gotta focus to see the signals. You need to use Atom to prioritize. The internet, as we know it, is gone. We are entering now Eismosis. Going forward, everything is readable information. We've entered the era of assistive computing. These new tools, unless we make big changes, are just not gonna be available to everybody, and that's going to create a terrifying digital divide. At some point, everybody is going to need upskilling, and perhaps most importantly, big tech companies are becoming even bigger and more powerful. So, I promised you a plan for your personal futures, and this is it. I made you a digital swag bag. So, it's a Dropbox folder. Uh, and there is a ton of stuff in it for you. There's this year's trend report already there. Our methodology, which is open sourced, which means I expect you to go use it. 
Um, there's a blank atom chart that you can take back and start using with your colleagues. There are some how-to guides to help you get started with strategic foresight. For fun, we also made a Spotify playlist this year um, that represents an emotional journey uh, through all of the trends in music form. And there's actually something I've never done before that I am doing this year because I, I really am concerned about the decisions that we're making. I put this presentation in that folder, okay? So, um, it, now, there's a Creative Commons license, so please read it and don't be like horrible people and take this stuff as your own. But you, I do want you to download it, I want you to use it, I want you to show it to, to people, I want you to give parts of it. We have a lot of work to do together and we need to continue forward what we started here today. All right, uh, I'll be at the bookstore right after this. Please come by and say hello, but I also would just love your feedback. Um, really, we need to thank everybody here at South By. Um, that, is, that is for South By, that's for all the hundreds of volunteers, that's for Hugh Forrest, that's for Katie, that's for the entire team that does this for us. Thank you, I will see you next year.